the book of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. Genesis 2 verse 25. And we will read through chapter 3 verse 13. Genesis 2 25 through chapter 3 verse 13. Here's what we read. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <coughs> Excuse me. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. When we left off this morning, Eve had a choice. Would she trust the Word of God? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Or would she trust the words of this beast of the field? You will not surely die. Satan, who is here either working through the serpent or taking the form of a serpent, he is he does something to try and pull Eve's trust over towards him. She has a choice, God's word or the word of the serpent. And so to strengthen his case, to entice her, to choose his word rather than God's, he says, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What Satan is doing here is continuing his ploy to make Eve doubt God's good intentions towards her. Remember, he framed the question in verse 1 to make it sound as if God doesn't want her and Adam to eat from the trees of the garden. And now he raises her suspicions of why this one tree is off limits. If God is so good, why doesn't he want me to have the fruit of this one tree? Never mind the fact that He's given me more than I should have ever imagined or dreamed. Never mind the fact that I can have fellowship with Him. 
Never mind the fact that my every need is met. God must be cruel, for here is one thing He will not let me have. According to Satan, what God doesn't want Eve to have is likeness with Him. He knows that if you eat of it, you will be like Him. Now this is actually pretty silly in light of everything we've already learned. Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God. The whole purpose of their existence is to bring glory to God by being like Him in some very important ways. In exercising dominion, in their work, in their fellowship with one another, in their fruitfulness and ability to produce life. All of these were given to them by God that they would glorify Him in being like Him. And now in light of all of this, can Eve really believe that God doesn't want her to be like Him? Can she really believe that he has evil intentions towards her? Can she really believe that he is keeping something back from her that would be for her good? As I suggested last week, the nature of this test is this. Will Adam and Eve trust that God will lead them into knowledge and wisdom or will they seek to grasp knowledge and wisdom apart from God and opposed to God? Because I genuinely believe that had Adam and Eve trusted God and passed this test, they would have had the knowledge of good and evil. God would have led them into it. They would have received wisdom. And in doing so, their hearts would have been placed in such a situation that they would never ever sin again. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? They would have been confirmed in their holiness, unable to ever fall once God granted them this gift of wisdom. The book of Proverbs associates wisdom with the tree of life. And Adam and Eve, had they passed the test, would have been granted to eat from the tree of life. Never again would they have been susceptible to falling away. So this was God's good intention towards her, but Satan does not want Eve to believe that, despite the fact that his love for her is everywhere she looks. And every gift that he's given her, Satan wants her to look at the one thing, the only thing that God has set apart not to be given to her that time. He wants her to think that God is wicked and not letting her have it. In this moment, Eve is not being God-centered, but Eve-centered, right? It's about me. Why can't I have this? And that is at the bottom of every sin, isn't it, church? Every sin we ever commit is about centering ourselves on us rather than on God. Look with me at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Note the progression of how Eve falls into this sin. First, she saw. Rather than covering her eyes, she looks at the fruit and allows it to begin pulling at her heart. In this moment, this created thing, this 
fruit became more important to her than it ever should have been. This is the essence of worldliness. 1 John 2 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, by the way, you might say, why would God say that? Isn't my family in the world? Aren't there good things in the world worthy of love? What it means when the Bible says do not love the world is do not love the world inordinately. Do not love the world out of proportion. Your love for God must always supersede the things of the world. In the Bible, loving the world is loving things of the world more than God. And in this moment, Eve is loving this fruit more than the very God who created her. And why does she love it so much? Because it's the only thing she doesn't have. 1 John chapter 2 says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, listen, and the desires of the eyes, isn't that what's happening with Eve? And pride and possessions, this is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The fruit that Eve was looking at was created by God, but this immoral desire welling up in Eve's heart, this is not from God. This is the wickedness of the serpent now beginning to rise in her own heart. Now we could get lost in speculating about the origins of evil and how evil could suddenly appear in the heart of a human being that was created good. As I understand it, evil is like darkness. It's not a created thing like trees or rocks. People say, where did evil come from? Surely a good God could not allow evil to exist or create evil. But there is no creating of evil as I understand it. Evil is just the absence of good. Just as darkness is the absence of light. Right? In the beginning, God said, let there be light. He didn't need to say, let there be darkness, because once there was light, there was the possibility of darkness. And so it is, as long as there has been good, which is forever in God, then there has always been the possibility of ungood, non-good, evil. Had Eve trusted God, she would have been brought into a state of holiness where evil could never rise in her soul. But instead, she is choosing to trust the serpent. And she's looking at this fruit, and wickedness is rising in her heart. She saw. But notice the progression. She saw, and then she what? took she put the fruit in her hands now if god did tell adam and eve like eve said not to even touch the tree she's already sinning isn't she just by touching the fruit either way she's giving into the temptation matthew henry makes two important points here he says first note that it was eve who took satan did not tie eve down and force her to take the fruit satan cannot do that He cannot force us to sin. He can only prompt. He can only persuade. Matthew Henry says, Satan may tempt, but he cannot force. He may persuade us to cast ourselves down, but he cannot cast us down. Mankind's fall was of our own accord. We fell. Satan did not pull us down. He persuaded us to throw ourselves down in this foolish act. The other observation that Matthew Henry makes is that this sin of Eve's already here is a sin of theft. Because this was the one tree and the one fruit that God had not given to her and Adam. It belonged to God. Oh, there was fruit all around her. 
Chapter 2, verse 9 told us that the trees of the garden were pleasing to the sight and good for food. This was the only tree which belonged to God alone. This was the only fruit that did not belong to her. And so that is the fruit that she went. And when she took it, she committed the first theft in the history of the human race. Well, she looked, she took, and she ate. Evade of the fruit. She, she had begun the downward spiral, and that which she probably had not intended to do at the beginning, she found herself doing in the end. You've heard the statement, give sin an inch and it will take you, what? A mile. Eve broke the explicit commandment given to her from God. But there's more. Because Satan's primary target was never really Eve to begin with. His primary target is God. And his goal is to get at God by turning these people that he loves against him. And he wants to get at Adam. He wants to get at Adam because he is the first human being, the federal head of the human race. In this moment, the, hum the fate of humanity resides in Adam. And so he is going at Adam through this precious gift of Eve. You may remember how Satan sought to get at Jesus through Peter, right? Get away from me, Satan. And so also many times in our own lives, Satan may t attempt to use those closest to us to draw us away from God. In fact, let me say this. We must never, ever, ever think that our sins affect us alone. Our sins are never private. Our sins are never personal. But they always affect others, whether we can trace exactly how or not. We must... Had Eve not sinned, Adam may not would have sinned either. We need to hate sin, not only because of what it does in us, but because of what it can do to others through us. Eve gave some of the fruit to her husband, and he ate. Now the failures of Adam are numerous. As the keeper of the garden, he should have never allowed this wicked serpent to be there. Like the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the first Adam should have crushed the head of the serpent underneath of his feet. But he didn't. Second, he should have protected his wife, reasoning with her, helping her not to lose sight of the goodness and blessings of God. Third, he should have acted as the leader in their marriage rather than as the follower. It was his responsibility to refuse his wife, to say, I will not eat, and to lovingly rebuke her for her sin rather than to follow her down the same path. How can we describe the heinousness of what Adam does here when he takes and eats? This is a direct, this is an act of direct obedience. I'm sorry. This is an act of direct disobedience against the clear and easy commandment of God. This is an act of unbelief. For surely if, God, if Adam had really believed God's word and what he had told him in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he would not have done it. This was an act of pride, as if he and Eve deserved to have this fruit and the wisdom it gave. And perhaps Adam thought that he was too precious in God's sight for God to condemn. 
There was a sin of envy here, a sin of jealousy, as Adam and Eve wanted for themselves something that belonged to God alone. In eating this fruit, Adam shows utter disdain for all the other gifts he had received, as if to say, everything else you've given me, God, it's still not enough. He shows lust and covetousness for the only fruit that had not been given to him. There there are so many sins in this one sin. Do you understand that, church? There are so many sins piled together in this one act. Despite all that God had given him, despite God's presence, despite the highest privilege of all, fellowship with God, Adam knowingly and willingly disobeyed. And there would be hell to pay. In verse 7, after they eat of the fruit, we see the immediate results. Their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, this is where we began this morning, right? Chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What do we say this morning? Of course they were not ashamed. They had no reason to be. Their bodies were holy instruments employed in the service of God. Their bodies were created for work and for worship, for fellowship and for intimacy. Their bodies were pure vessels to be used in bringing glory to God. There was no reason to be ashamed. But now everything has changed. Their bodies have been used for wickedness. The hands that God gave them for God-honoring work have now been used to commit theft. The mouth that God gave them to sing praises to Him and to fellowship with Him and one another have now been used to commit an act of treason and utter disobedience as they eat of the fruit. Their bodies have gone from being vessels of honor to vessels of shame and dishonor. There's more. Because we don't normally cover our hands or our mouths... There is the issue here of nakedness. We consider somebody naked or exposed when their sexual organs are exposed. In the beginning, these parts of our bodies were to be used for the glory of God, to produce a world of worshipers. There was nothing about sex or about the sexual union to be ashamed of. These body parts that God had given man and woman were to be used to create a kingdom of people for Himself. It was a glorious thing. But now, Adam and Eve have aligned themselves with the serpent. They have joined the rebellion against God which Satan began in heaven. And now the children that they produce with those organs will no longer fill the world with worshipers, but will fill the world with God-haters. Those members of their bodies which were to be used in procreation are now a reason for shame. If I can be very blunt here, when you put on your underwear in the morning and you think to yourself, I wonder why we do this. Why is it so important to us as human beings to stay covered up? It's rooted here in the fact that we were created to produce a world of worshipers. And now those parts of our bodies, because of our sin, produce children, other human beings who are at war with God. 
It should serve as a reminder to us of how sin has wrecked the glory of the human race. God's special creation, privileged to be His unique image bearers and worshipers, have now been turned against Him. And every child born to the human race is now born dead to God and an enemy of Him. (laughs) It's funny, so many people, liberal scholars, think that Paul got his doctrine of original sin out of nowhere. They say there's no hint of original sin in Genesis. One, that is so untrue as we will see the progression of original sin in this book. But I think certainly it's here in the whole idea of becoming aware and ashamed of those parts of their bodies that create new human beings. Paul's doctrine, indeed Christ's doctrine of original sin, begins here. When Adam and Eve's bodies become instruments of shame and they make loincloths for themselves. It's confirmed throughout the next several chapters as we see depravity abound more and more and more with each succeeding generation of children. By the time we get to the days of Noah, in Genesis 6, It's only three chapters away. In Genesis 6, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Psalm 58.3, we find a verse that seems to make clear that depravity is not something we simply learn from our environment as we get older but it's something we're actually born with. We inherit a sinful nature. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. In the book of Job, Job asks the question, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Job 14.4 Even we who are Christians know that our hearts of love to God and our faith in God are not something we've always had. We weren't born with this faith. We weren't born with this love for God. Ephesians 2.3 says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Do you remember, church, when you used to live in the passions of your flesh? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature, by nature, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us were born with a sinful nature. Now this is difficult for some people because this raises the questions about our children and particularly our our children who die in infancy. If they inherit sin from Adam and this sinful heart, then do they go to heaven when they die? I think that there is good reason to hope that babies do, in fact, go to heaven. But church, it's not because little babies are born innocent. The Bible never says that. If little babies, like our own little David Elijah, are in heaven, it's because of the grace of God. His soul was saved by Jesus just as mine was. Most of you know I have a a blog on the internet. 
Uh, I recommend books there. I put up quotes from things I've been reading. I link to resources. I put these sermon manuscripts up there. Recently, uh, Crystal took a picture of Benjamin, and, uh, and it was just a really cute picture, and I just really loved it. And so I put that up on the blog, just this picture of Benjamin. He's, we have these windows by our front door, and he's just peeking out one of the windows. And she took it from outside, and there he is peeking. It's just a, you can go to the blog and check it out. It's really cute. So I put that on there and just said, I really think this is a really cute picture because, I mean, he's so adorable in that picture. My friend Dan Roth, who lives just a block away and is pastor of Servant's Heart Fellowship, he commented on there in a friendly way and just reminded me that we must never fall into the trap of treating our children as sweet little innocents. Because if we do, we will not train them as we ought. We will not discipline them as we ought. And we will not point them to Jesus as we ought. And so to help me, he put up a quote by J.C. Ryle. And I want to read this whole quote to you, the full quote from J.C. Ryle. And you see what you think. The fairest child, the fairest child who has entered life this year and become the sunbeam of a family is not, as his mother perhaps fondly calls him, a little angel or a little innocent, but a little sinner. Alas, as that infant boy or girl lies smiling and crowing in its cradle, that little creature carries in its heart the seeds of every kind of wickedness. Only watch it carefully as it grows in stature, as its mind develops, and you will soon detect in it an incessant tendency to that which is bad and a backwardness to that which is good. You will see in it the buds and germs of deceit, evil temper, selfishness, self-will, obstinacy, greediness, envy, jealousy, passion, which if indulged and let alone will shoot up with painful rapidity. Now parents, you know this is true. Who taught the child these things? Where did he learn them? The Bible alone can answer these questions. Of all the foolish things that parents say about their children, there is none worse than the common saying, My son has a good heart at the bottom. He is not what he ought to be, but he has fallen into bad hands. Public schools are bad places, you know. The tutors neglect the boys, yet he has a good heart at the bottom. J.C. Ryle says, The truth, unhappily, is diametrically the other way. The first cause of all sin lies in the natural corruption of the boy's own heart and not in the public schools. We're so quick to blame everything on environment. We're so quick to blame everything on, well, you don't know his childhood. You don't know what she went through. You don't know the things that they've gone through. And that's why my child acted like that. That's why this person lives this way. But the Bible says that ultimately the root of our sin is in our hearts. Let me put it this way. We're not sinners because we commit a sin. We commit sins because we are sinners. That's the Bible's diagnosis of you and me. And we need to come to grips with it. It's only when you come to grips with it that you can really begin to appreciate what Christ has done to make you a new creation. And that's really the question because if this is how we are born... <laughs> 
then how is it that many of us in this room have come to love God and trust God, however imperfectly, right? I mean, many of us in this room, we really do love God. Oh, we got so far to go, we don't love Him nearly as much as we ought, but we truly do love God. How did we go from this, from this natural hardened heart against God, inherited from Adam, to having a heart that genuinely loves God? And the answer is, we had to be made all over again, didn't we? We had to be born again. God is making a new humanity. Humanity 2.0, right? The new version. The core principle of who you are has been changed by the Spirit of God accompanying the preaching of the gospel and now the sin that is left in you is residual and temporary, but it is on its way out. And Jesus will continue to wash you with the water of the Word until the day you die or He returns. And on that day, you will be fully new. And all of the damage that Adam did in the garden will have been fully repaired by Christ. Why did God do it this way? After all, He knew man was going to fall. He created this test He put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. He did not prevent the serpent from tempting Eve. So why did God plan history this way? Why was there a plan of man's fall and the redemption in Christ? And the answer, of course, is that He planned it this way for His own glory. That in having man fall and come under the curse and then be redeemed by Jesus Christ, He could display the fullness of His character and be better seen and loved by His precious people. As we have said before, had the fall of man not occurred, we would have known God as our Creator, we would have known God as our wise ruler, but we would have never seen His justice. We would have never seen His righteousness, His mercy, His compassion, the power of His wrath, nor the power of His love. Apart from Adam's fall, there would have been no cross. And Jesus would not have revealed to us the humility and gentleness and meekness that He possesses in the Godhead. So much of what we love about God, so much of what we just sang about and what we will be singing about for eternity, we would never have known about our God had the fall of man not happened. God allowed this to happen because His glory is the most important thing in the universe. It's not mainly about us, folks. Human history is not even mainly about us. It's about God. So humble yourself. Ultimately, all of this was about God revealing Himself in Jesus. All that happened here in Genesis 3 was to make possible a day when God would honor His Son, glorify His Son, show love to His Son by making Him the head of a redeemed people. Genesis 3 and the fall of man is the setup for John 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Genesis 3 is the setup for Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Adam existed to bring a day when Christ would come and reveal the glory of God in its fullness to us. And that's the point of it all. 
the glory of God, the plan of the Father to honor the Son, and the plan of the Son to honor the Father. Now Adam and Eve got what they were after. They have now gained some portion of a knowledge of good and evil. And the knowledge they've received is devastating because now they see that God is good and they, by their own willful, foolish actions, are now evil. But what happens next? God comes walking in the cool of the day. Now, how is God walking since God is a spirit and does not have a body like us? Well, He is walking because God is certainly able to make Himself appear as a man, which is what He does here. And I, for one, take this to be a pre-incarnation appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it's God's way, I think, to reveal Himself in Jesus. And so we have, I believe, the second person of the Godhead walking. Now, normally, when God came to fellowship with Adam and Eve, I can imagine Adam and Eve being filled with great joy as they heard God coming to them. I can imagine them looking forward to their time together and the fellowship they would share. But on this occasion, they don't move towards God to greet Him and welcome Him. They do what? They move away from God. They hide. And that's always the result of sin, isn't it? Sin always drives us away from God. Sin makes that which ought to be our greatest joy, the presence of God. Sin makes the presence of God sour and scary to us. Like Isaiah in the presence of God, humbled in the dirt and crying out, Woe is me. So Adam and Eve do not want to find themselves face to face with the holy God whom they have just blatantly disobeyed. Darkness hates light. Sin hates purity. Sinners do not like to find themselves uncovered before God. Jesus talked about this. In John 3, verse 20, he said, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works be exposed. I am very thankful for the relationship that I have with Jonathan. I'm thankful that Jonathan likes to be with me and to talk with me and to have conversations with me. Will he be that way when he's 15? I don't know. But right now, he likes that. He enjoys spending time with me and but a couple Sundays ago, Jonathan did something here at church that he had been previously warned not to do. And he broke a very easy and clear command, and he knew it. On the way home from church, he stayed very unusually quiet. As Crystal and I talked in the car about the service. When we arrived home, I noticed that he headed immediately for his room, to the back corner of his room, sort of behind his bunk bed where I couldn't really see him. He was hiding from me. Other times he wanted to be with me. Other times he wanted my conversation. But at this time, he didn't want to be around me. He knew that at this moment all was not well and his sin had come between us. The moment I called for him to come to me so we could talk about what he had done, he broke down crying. We talked about what he had done. He immediately confessed it and acknowledged that he had sinned against both God and his parents. His punishment was quick, and then it was over. And within minutes, he was right back beside me talking to me about race cars. Right? But we had to get the sin out of the way. 
sin creates in us a desire to get away from God, not to want His presence. And here, sin had come between Adam and, between Adam and Eve and the God with whom they had had such a great relationship. And now they were hiding. And unlike Jonathan, who was willing to confess what he had done with no excuses, when Adam and Eve are confronted by God about their sin, they don't even man up to their sin, but they're quick to cast the blame. Look at how it unfolds very quickly. Verse 9, God calls to the man, says to him, Where are you? Folks, it's not that God didn't know where Adam is. God has come to them in the form of a man. He's functioning as a man. This is what we call anthropomorphic language, the language of human beings being applied to God. But notice who it is that God calls first. It was Eve who ate first from the tree, but it's not Eve that God calls for. It's Adam, because Adam was responsible both for himself and for his wife. And now the moment of reckoning has come. In verse 10, Adam explains that he hid from God because of his nakedness. But as soon as he says that he hid from God because of his nakedness, he is inadvertently confessing that he knows he's naked, which he never would have known had he not eaten of the tree. So he messes up from the beginning if he thinks he could hide it from God. God gives Adam an opportunity to confess. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam confesses, but as he does, he tries to shift the responsibility for his actions off of himself and onto Eve and ultimately onto God. It was Eve who gave me the fruit. It was God who had given him Eve. And therefore, they must be to blame. Adam fails to take the very responsibility he was created to take. Friends, with authority, honor, and privilege always comes responsibility. In the military, the higher your rank, the more authority you have, the more responsibility you have. And so it is in life. Adam was given a great gift. Eve was a treasure, a wonderful blessing, but he failed to care for her. The garden was a great gift, but Adam failed to keep the serpent out. Ultimately, Adam's great privileges and authority came back to bite him in a big way because he failed to appreciate those gifts and to be the faithful steward of them that he should have been. Jesus told a parable about a master who went away for a long time and entrusted his servants with talents, with a, a sum of money. And each of the servants was to use what was entrusted to him well, for he would be responsible for it when the master returned. Well, here the master has returned and it's time for Adam to give an account. So also, we will one day stand before God, won't we? And give an account for how faithful we've been as stewards of what God's entrusted to us. God turns to Eve and she also confesses her sin, but at the same time she imitates her husband in seeking to shift the blame. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, next Sunday, we will look at the judgments that God begins to issue to the serpent, the woman, and the man. But for now, let me close by pointing out that what we have here is a foreshadowing of our own judgment day. It may sound strange to say, but in Genesis 3, all mankind stands before God. Don't they? Because Adam and Eve were all mankind. This is a picture of what's to come for us. God here 
is going to judge justly in accordance with what Adam and Eve have done. They knew the covenant. They knew the terms. Obedience would mean continued blessings and eternal life, but disobedience would mean eternal death. They made a choice. They chose death. Well, friends, that very same covenant is still in effect this very moment between you and God. And you will one day stand before God just as Adam and Eve did, and you will have to be judged according to what you have done. Jesus will be the judge, and books will be opened, and all of your thoughts, attitudes, words, and behaviors will be exposed. Every secret sin known. Jesus said, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You remember Numbers 32, 23, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. We've all broken the covenant of works, haven't we? We've all disobeyed. Only through Jesus do we have salvation. He alone forgives us of our sins washes us and makes us white as snow. He bore the hell you deserve on the cross if you believe. He accomplished the perfect righteousness that Adam failed to accomplish and that you failed to accomplish. And he gives it to you as a gift, as a covering. All that needs to be done for you to be pure and holy and good in the sight of God has been done for you in Jesus. You don't even have to understand it all. Thank goodness. All you have to see is your need. Hate your sin and long to be with God. So, do you long for what Adam and Eve gave up? Do you? Do you long not just for a place called heaven or just to escape a place called hell, but do you long to have the fellowship and presence of God that Adam and Eve forfeited? If that sounds boring to you, you're a long way from the kingdom of heaven. But if that sounds like what you desire, if you know that God is your treasure, that He is what you really want, then that's a work of the Spirit in your life. It's all yours in Jesus Christ. If you humble yourself, trust Him, receive Him, you do it. Pray that you will. Are there any questions? about things that have been said this morning or tonight about Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden and the fall of man.